Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Well, hello, all you lit lovers, and welcome to a special edition of Bibliophiles. I call it special not because the drill is really going to be any different, because to be frank with you, the drill is going to be exactly the same. No, I call it special because instead of your regular host, Adam, instead you're going to get me. I am Ian. I sound just like him, but we're different people. (laughs) The reason for that is that today is a what are we reading episode and Adam himself is in the hot seat. Welcome. How you doing, dad? Doing good. Thanks for the intro, Ian. Oh, absolutely. We're joined also today by our lovely wives, my wife, Emily. Hello. And my mom. Hi, mom. Hi. Glad you guys could be with us. Let's take him to task. Dad, I understand you aren't reading anything that we would consider necessarily to be a high finaglin novel. No, that's true. Not a novel this time around. What are you reading? I am reading Thunder Cake by Patricia Polacco, a classic work of children's literature, a bedtime story, if you will, composed of wonderful poetry and watercolor and pencil illustrations. Why are you reading Thunder Cake? (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is a great question. Uh, My first answer to that question is why not? I actually think everyone should read Thunder Cake. And you don't need to read it every day or over and over and over again. But every reader should read Thunder Cake for a list of reasons that's as long as your arm. Well, let's hear them. I want to tell them to you. I want to tell you exactly why this book is so great. And I am enjoying it thoroughly. Actually, it's it's appropriate to use the past tense. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Because it's not an ongoing project. No, it's not. It actually took about it's 10 minutes. It's a short read. That's right. It took about 10 minutes to read. I know why, you, I know why you're after this book today. Why? It's because you got caught with your pants down and you didn't actually have a book on your bedside table to talk about <laughs> oh, this Oh, shots. Fire. <laughs> what wow. have I got? What have I got? I've got 10 wow. minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> Wow. Just kidding. Um, the great thing about my wife is that she's got this wonderful sense of humor, but it has a mean streak in it. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a cold underbelly to the <laughs> And sometimes even a little perverse. That was ruthless. <laughs> wait until I'm done. Ruthless. Just wait till I'm done. You'll okay, all well, agree with me. Let's just let's just reel it back in here. Dad, tell us why you think Thundercake is such a great read. What have you been getting out of it? Well, it's it has to do with why we love children's literature at Center for Lit, obviously. We do a lot of work in the parents and readers that we talk to in extolling the virtues of this particular genre, children's literature, of picture books, for a couple different reasons. And and two of the main ones, I think, apply to, to Thundercake really well. The first one is that it's a wonderful um, refresher course in literary analysis, in literary interpretation, because the structure of the of a great picture book has everything in common with the structure of a great novel. And so you can see, for example, especially if you're teaching to students, you can see the, the conflict developing in the exposition and rising action of the plot. You can see a climactic moment coming really clearly that resolves the underlying conflict and a denouement sweeping down to a conclusion where things are wrapped up in a nice little bow the wonderful 
story structure of a children's story is relatively clear compared to how it's sometimes presented in a Shakespeare play or a Dostoevsky novel or something where it's a little bit more opaque. And for that reason, it's a wonderful teaching tool for literary analysis and literary reading with students. And so at Center for Lit, we're always going back to uh, children's stories as teaching tools like that. But that's obviously not the reason that I'm reading Thundercake because that lesson is not one I'm learning. That's a lesson I'm teaching. The other reason (laughs) children's stories are great is that not only do they share this structural shape with the great stories of the world, but they also partake of those universal themes that make the great stories great. And I think it's such a great experience every once in a while to see those universal themes being eloquently stated and artistically represented for the youngest readers that it reminds me of my humanity. And for a minute, I'm a little child who is as open to the world of ideas, you know, as I was when I was eight. And I love that experience of being reminded at kind of a visceral level of the capital T truth that exists in the world that artists in every medium in every genre have the ability to uncover and express. Okay. So I, I don't think it's possible that any of us could have a bone to pick with any of that, right, mom? No, of course not. Okay. Well, good. Now that he's successfully defended himself. <laughs> Dad, how are those ideas actually found in the story? Well, the great thing about Thundercake is that it is, um, well, let me just give you a quick synopsis and, and we can, I can synopsize the whole story because of its, its brief length. It's about a little girl who is um, caught in a thunderstorm with her grandmother. She's inside her grandmother's house and lightning is crashing over the, over the house where they live. It's a farmhouse in, in rural Michigan. And the, the opening scene is a flash of lightning and a peal of thunder. And grandma says, oh my goodness, there's a storm brewing. Then she says, get out from under that bed, child. There's nothing to be afraid of. And the little protagonist we find is a little girl hiding under the bed in abject terror because of an approaching thunderstorm. And so her grandmother says, you've got to get out from under that bed so that we can gather the ingredients that we'll need to make a thunder cake. And if we don't get them all gathered and the cake in the oven before the storm arrives, then it won't be a real thunder cake. And so the little girl says, you know, what's a thunder cake? And grandmother says, well, let me show you. And she gets the recipe out. And then she says, okay, we're going to need a long list of ingredients and I want you to help me gather them. And so she begins by saying, we're going to need a couple of eggs from old, mean old Nellie Peckhen. And the, the story, which is told in the first person, has a little girl saying, oh no, I went out to the chicken coop and I got a couple of eggs from mean old Nellie Peckhen and she looked right at me and she, I knew she was going to peck me. And she says, I was scared. And then she gets the eggs and then, then grandma says, okay, now we need milk from mean old kick cow. And the little girl says, then I went into the milking shed and I got the milk from the cow and she looked right at me with a mean old glare and I knew she wanted to kick me and I was scared. And then they go into the, they go through Tangleweed Woods, which is a dark and scary trail in the bushes out to the dry shed where they get uh, flour and sugar and it's dark and creepy and all the, all the while, in each one of these little scenes, the protagonist says, and I was scared. And then grandma says in some sort of soft cooing voice, it's okay, child, I'm standing right here. 
And also, I have to say, there's this other great little device that Polacco uses. At every stage, there's a, a crash of lightning and a peal of thunder. And her grandmother has taught her how to count the seconds between the lightning and the thunder to estimate how close the storm is. And every time it happens, the storm gets closer and closer. So the tension builds, you know, in the mind of the reader that are they going to get the thunder cake in the oven in time? And is the little girl going to be able to surmount each obstacle? And the last one is that they have to get the secret ingredient. And grandma says, climb up that rickety old trellis and get three overripe tomatoes for the secret ingredient. And she climbs up and one more time, she says, as lightning peels or lightning flashes, she says, I was scared. And so they finally get the thunder cake in the oven just as the storm crashes over their house. And um, it's a triumph. And they get the thunder cake uh, made and the tension begins to drain away from the story. And at that point, you think it's just, um, I don't know, it's a kind of a wonderful story where the love of the grandmother is sort of wrapping itself around this little protagonist and it's all kind of sweet. But there's this climactic moment that I think takes the story from a soft and sweet bedtime story into the realm of universal truth, into the realm of eternal themes that I just think is really stirring. Here's what happens. They're sitting there waiting for the, the cake to bake and, and she says, Grandma looked straight at me and said, you are brave. And the little girl responds, I was hiding under the bed, remember? And grandma says, yeah, but you went and got the eggs from mean old Nellie Peck hen, and you got the milk from old Kit Cow, and you went through Tangleweed Woods to the dry shed, and you climbed the trellis for the overripe tomatoes, and from where I sit, only a brave girl could have done all those things. And the little girl says, I realized that she was right. I was brave. And then she says, from that moment on, as they sit and eat their cake out of the oven and the lightning crashes and thunder rolls all around, she says, from that moment on, I never feared thunder again. And then at the end, she provides a little recipe for thunder cake in case you want to make it with your kids. Which I have made with my kids. Do you remember, Ian? I have had thunder cake. It you was have. pretty good. It's very good. And we actually even made it during a storm. That's right. That's right. Oh, homeschool family. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I think this is a great this is a great climactic moment. And I just I just it moves me every time. It moves me. What I think is really interesting about it, and you put it really well earlier, is that um children's stories have two kinds of power. The the first kind is to make you feel like a kid again, right? Because they're innocent and they're simple and the illustrations are evocative. And, and so it's a beautiful experience of forgetting about all of your, you know, very adult cares in the world right. and just losing yourself in a, in a simple story. But I think it's really interesting to think about the author of a children's story as someone who is self-consciously talking to that adult, um, as well as to the to the kids that are going to be the first ones to pick this up. It's almost as though Patricia Polacco knows that the mama reading over her little kid's shoulder and reading the book out loud needs to hear these things just as much as the kid does, maybe more so. I just think that's profound, Ian. I think you're exactly right. Uh, the, every author of every great children's book knows that he or she is writing for two audiences, the, the, the lap sitter and the reader. And they're in two different stages of life, but the glory of this genre is they both need to hear the same things. They're both, they're both partakers of the same world of universal themes. 
at different levels based on different sets of life experiences, but the <laughs> but the the underlying truth that they uncover is the same for both. And I think in the case of this great story, it's it it comes through in both sides. It comes through in the in the part that's written for the kid and in the underlying theme that's more obvious to the grown-up. L- like in that last that last statement that grandmother makes to the little girl, from where I sit, she says, only a brave girl could have done all this, all these things. And I can imagine young readers saying, oh, it's, um, it's good to look back on the fact that when, with my grandmother's help, I actually did do all those things. But as I read this story, I look back and see that at every moment when she was doing all those quote unquote brave things, her self-evaluation was the same. I was terrified. I was scared. And if I ask myself, what is it that really gave the little girl a final you know, victory, as it were, over her fear? It wasn't the fact that she actually conquered it and did the right thing anyway. It was the grandmother's word at the end, the grandmother's word of acceptance, the grandmother's word of affirmation, the grandmother's, um, you might say, Proclamation. I, yeah, yeah, pr- that's the right word. The grandmother's proclamation of who the little girl was. And I love that little phrase she says, from where I sit. In other words, in my opinion, mm-hmm. given that I'm the one who gets to decide who is who in this situation, I say, you are brave. And the little girl responds, from that moment on, I never feared thunder again. Hmm. And I don't know how, I don't, I haven't, I wasn't a little kid when I had this read to me. I was a grown up reading it to my children. But what I hear in that story is you are not what you do. You are who your grandmother says you are. Mm-hmm. And, or, or at least you're not what you feel. Right. But you are what your grandmother right. says you <laughs> yes. are. <laughs> you are what your grandmother says you are. And in, in, in that way, this story plays on a theme that is really near and dear to my heart that crops up in all kinds of adult literature everywhere. This theme of identity, where we get it, how badly we need it, and what the, the, the honest, dependable sources of a good identity are. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think it's built into the, the warp and woof of the world that parents and grandparents are reliable sources of identity, certainly indelible sources of identity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we get them from our, we get our identities from our parents, from our upbringing, from our homes. But I, I think the application of that idea that, that not just from parents, but we get our identity from the proclamation of those in authority, from the proclamation of our progenitors from a, a, you know, a Christian view of this story would be, we get our identity from a proclamation of God. Although God himself never shows up in that particular story, you'd have to be reading pretty figuratively. Yeah, I think so. Unless, unless um, God is the voice of thunder driving the two of them to have this relational moment. Right. <laughs> you may have read past the story. Yeah, maybe you might have read a little past it. <laughs> but the sentiment So your verdict true. then on Thundercake is go get it and read it immediately, right? Well, yeah. I mean, just, just to keep going past a, a purely literary reading of the story, I mean, and this... I always like to make the point, and we all do really, when we're talking about how to read books correctly, there are a certain set of 
of comments you can make about a story that are literary, that participate in the art form. And then once you go beyond those, you're, you're reacting to a work of literature and having a different kind of conversation. But in my own mm-hmm. experience, that theme of receiving an identity from, uh, from above, as it were, resonates with um, the universal themes of Christianity. I mean, I'm thinking about that scene in, in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And it says, and lo, a voice from heaven uh, crying out, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I like to think about the fact that when Jesus received that proclamation from his father in heaven, it came before he'd actually done anything. It was the very first public moment of his earthly ministry. He hadn't actually done anything to earn a, uh, a well done but he got the word of approval anyway, and I, a statement of identity, as it were. This is my son who did great, who's brave, you know, as if it were his grandmother talking. <laughs> and and that doesn't that doesn't negate the fact that later on in his uh, in his career, he could probably say with the protagonist of Thundercake, "I was scared." But beyond that, and 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 separate from that. He had an, a word of proclamation from heaven that he um, was good enough for his father. And I, I'm reminded of that when I read Thundercake or books like it that have that question of identity uh, at the bottom of them, that I have a word of affirmation, a proclamation of my secure identity from heaven before I lift a finger to earn it or to uh, fail to deserve it. Either way, that's not the relevant thing. The relevant thing is the word of my quote-unquote grandmother saying, you're good enough for me. And you get that by imputation from that very same event, the baptism of Christ, because you've been baptized into his sufferings. Exactly. Exactly right. And you can see that, you can see that, uh, I don't know, I have no idea whether Patricia Polacco had that in mind in Thundercake, which is an interesting literary conversation that we could have. But I, there's a connection in my own heart and in my own head between that uh, imputation of identity that we find in Thundercake and the imputation of identity that all Christians have in God's Word to Christ. You're doing a little syntopical reading there. A little what? A little syntopical reading. That's borrowing a term. I have to give credit where credit's due to Mortimer Adler and his, his ilk. Um, they talked about syntopical reading is synthesizing um, the conversation going on across a topic between authors. Uh, so in this case, you're synthesizing the topical conversation between, um, for example, you said Mark in the book of Mark. About uh, Matthew, identity. yeah. Matthew. Right. Matthew. Okay, between Matthew and Patricia Polacco on the issue of identity and where it comes from. Mm-hmm. So whereas Patricia Polacco um, never talked about God. Right. And wasn't necessarily talking about the identity that comes from God, only the identity that comes through the relationship that the child had with her grandmother. Um, it partakes of the same kinds of ideas as Matthew actually yeah. said in his his own recitation of that story you told. Yeah, exactly. And I it it resonates with all kinds of other works of literature that I have read and know and love. This question of yeah, who- like I think immediately of um, C.S. Lewis's. Um, the Cupid Psyche myth retold. Oh yeah, till, till we, we have, have faces. Have faces, yeah. Yeah, same kind of, same kind of a conversation going on there on that issue of identity and where do we get it? Is it by 
by our behavior or our feelings, or does it come through some sort of proclamation from outside of us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of uh, Little Dorrit, Charles Dickens, the mm. 19th century novel. The heroine of that story gets her identity from her father, and she is a Dorrit, regardless of the fact that her behavior doesn't match the behavior of her ancestors. There's a stamp on her. And the question of whether she's going to trade that in for a new one as the story goes on is, and where that new identity is going to come from, is an active question throughout that story. I can see a lot of examples of it resonating. And again, not that Polacco had those in mind, but that I think that's an argument for the idea that it's a universal theme, that it crops up in lots of different places. Well, and why read if not to get at those universal themes? Cool that they can be found in kids' books, though. Well, and it's, you, yeah. it's because it was not written by a kid. It was written for a kid. Right. It was written by an adult, you know, who's cognizant of yeah. the great conversation. Yeah, like we were saying a minute ago. I, I actually like to think of the fact that um, children's literature is not uh, written by children. And really, it's not even written for children, at least not exclusively. It's written for readers, including children, which puts the readers mm. themselves, the, the parents, in the loop of the intended audience. At least that's true of the very best of children's right. fiction. It may not be true of those ones where they just take the plot of a Disney movie and slap some words down on the page to go with the Disney illustrations. Well, I think there's a movement more and more away from text in children's books. They're going more and more towards mm. um, pictures through stories and very sparse words on a page because parents are more and more reluctant to read to their children at night. So the audience is narrowed to just the child. Mm-hmm. Just rather unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Wow, unfortunate that was uh, that was a pretty far ranging discussion to start with a <laughs> with a ten page um, children's picture storybook. I'm impressed. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, you can do worse. And the other great thing about them is they don't take very long to read. That's right. That's right. Prep for this whole episode took you on the order of six and a half minutes. <laughs> and there we are, full circle. <laughs> Well, you guys, thanks for joining us. That was a great discussion, if a little brief, but brief like the story we were talking about and just as packed full of big ideas. Thanks for listening today. And don't forget to tune in next time around for another great episode of Bibliophiles. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>